You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. It's good to be with you as we start this new worship series, 2023 and Me, talking about what's a new year, right? So it's, it's good to get back to basics. What do we believe? Who are we? What is our shared DNA as followers of Jesus in the United Methodist Church, uh, for example, uh, we're kind of going back to basics. This week is who is God? Next week is who is Jesus? And the week after that is who is the Holy Spirit? We actually have a guest uh, preacher coming in on who is the Holy Spirit. Uh, so I thank you for, for joining us uh, today for this new uh, time together. You know, it was a, um, it was a uh, midsummer cloudy day and I was walking uh, on the beach in Pensacola with my dad uh, my dad is a chemist and also a believer. Uh, he's in the choir. He was SPR chair. He's been like everything in the United Methodist Church. He's currently, I believe, uh, the lay leader at uh, First United Methodist uh, down in Slidell, uh, Louisiana. Uh, annual conference representative. Anyway, I was walking along the beach and I was in like seventh or eighth grade. And some of you have heard this story before. And I asked my dad in that really formative time in middle school, I said, Dad, should I believe creation or evolution? <clears throat> Just a small, casual question on a, on a Tuesday afternoon while you're supposed to be on vacation. And my dad said, well, look at the tip of your finger. On the tip of your finger, there are a billion carbon atoms. Carbon comes from the death of stars billions of light years away. You are very intentionally made. The God who hung the stars had to shake them in order for you to be. I'm in seventh grade. Like, what an amazing answer, right? So while, while that was, you know, I was looking for a yes or no, dad, right? Yeah. Um, um, but that's, you know, uh, that's not what, what, what my dad would do. Uh, so I asked a follow-up question. And maybe I should have started with this question, but I asked a follow-up question while that question was like marinating uh, in my mind. Dad, you know, I said, dad, is God real? He said, well, yeah. Okay. How do you know? So uh, he looked down on the water. He goes, do you see the, you see the birds circling just above the surface of the water? I know that there's a school of fish just under the surface. I don't have to see under the surface to know what's there. He said, son, we think we live in a world of cause and effect. Something happens that leads to something else. But actually, when you rewind that clock, there is an uncaused effect. Perfectly natural to have an uncaused effect. The rules of physics allow it. That uncaused effects is the activity of God. I don't have to see under the surface to know what's there. And if you have trouble understanding what's under the surface, then look to the birds. Look to the birds, is what my dad said. Now, as, as fantastic as those questions and those answers are, it took me a long time to realize that I wasn't quite asking the right question. Early in ministry, uh, after graduating Divinity School, in my, the first church I was uh, appointed to, uh, someone asked me, well, what, tell me about seminary. What, what kind of class did you take on the existence of God? <laughs> And I said, well, we, there isn't one. 
And he got really offended by that and said, well, that, that school isn't worth your tuition. And it's like, well, usually you should firm that up before going to seminary. Like if you're still questioning whether or not there's a God, maybe seminary isn't the place for you, right? That's something to firm up. Seminary is not the first step in this train, friends, right? As interesting a question of, of is there a God, as interesting a question that is, what's a much better question is who is God? Who is God? At, at an early age, God for me was the uncaused effect that shook the stars so that life could be. But I know that not everyone has a Rick Rawl at their disposal. So who is God? Who is God to you? And I do, I wanna, I'm, I'm, in real time, we're gonna do this, and, and extroverts have a very hard time. Now extroverts, you'll get your moment in worship when we pass the peace together and shake hands with all the f uh, familiar and unfamiliar faces. Here's a moment for the introverts. Are you ready? We're gonna spend 12 seconds in silence. And I want you to think about that question, who is God to you? And pay attention to two things, what you see and how you feel. Who is God to you? Eyes closed, 12 seconds, go. What is the initial image that you see? Do you see an old man? Do you see something more ambiguous like light or a shape? Do you see someone who's disappointed or angry? Do you see something too holy to approach? Do you, do you have a hard time even discerning what that question is because God is so other? Maybe you see the face of someone you love. Or maybe you see the face of someone you wish would love you back. Who is God? Well, the answer to that question depends on how you're asking and what lens you want to use. Different lenses offer us a different picture of the questions we ask. For example, I don't know if you're following this, I follow this on TikTok, so my TikTok is full of this. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, have you been following all the discoveries for this? We're gonna put up an image here, and it's a side-by-side -side image of what's called the Pillars of Creation. These are the Pillars of Creation. Uh, on the right, my right side, your left side, is uh, the Pillars of Creation captured by Hubble. And on my left and your right, <laughs> is the same image captured by the James Webb Space Telescope. Both images are true, and both images are also different. Both images are true, both images are different. It just depends on what kind of lens you use and what you're looking for. Hubble captures visible light. So what you're seeing on the right is the visible spectrum. On my left, your right, <laughs> the one that's more detailed and clear, that's infrared. So it captures something just a bit different than does the Hubble. Both images are true, it's just depending on which lens you use reveals something that you're looking for. Both images are, images are true, but the lens changes what we understand. 
So, who is God? It depends on which lens we want to use. And I hope we're using more than one at our disposal. The first lens, which is important to use, is the lens of Scripture. <laughs> so let's, let's look at the Bible. What does the Bible have to say of who God is? Uh, we've seen the pillars of creation. Well, let's talk about creation. This first little bit uh, that I want to look at is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It's our first snapshot of who God is uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, it'll be on the screens, it'll be online, and it's also in your Bible if you want to follow along. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness God called night. There was an evening, there was a morning, the first day. The first thing we learn about God is that God is a creative God. Not only is God a creative God, but what God creates is good. And this is in opposition to other creation stories that were in the ancient world at the time. In other creation stories, there's typically more than one God. Typically, that God is at war with another God, and creation itself is an accident. But that is not our story. There is one God. Creation is not only purposeful, Creation is good. And that original goodness of creation, that original blessing extends, that, that original blessing of the first day where there was light extends all the way to the sixth day in which God created humanity. That original blessing and that original goodness extends all the way to you. God is creative. And God is good. God's creative activity isn't passive either. So God is, God is creative, God is good, and also God is humble. God gets out of the way. If you follow that first creation account, let there be light, let there be dry land, let there be... Let there be is not quite the same as there shall be. So in a way, God gets out of the way. It says, let the earth produce creeping things. Let the waters produce swarming things. In a way, God moves out of the way to allow creation to be. So that first snapshot, who is God? Our God is good. Our God is creative. Our God is collaborative. Now, as soon as we turn the page in Scripture, we get to Genesis chapter 2. We get a different lens. We get a different picture of God's collaborative goodness. So let's look at the second creation account, and it's in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 7 is what we will take a look at. Uh, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant on the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and would water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, immediately, you might notice that in the first uh, account, uh, God created, if you follow the first account, God created in seven days. And in the second account, it said, on the day that God created, or some more generic slice of time. There are differences in the stories. 
Uh, and those differences are important and those differences matter. In the second account, God gets down in the clay and gets God's divine hands dirty and fashions humanity out of the dust of the earth. God is certainly not passive in this second account. A second account, God fashions, God walks, God talks, God kneels down to be in relationship with humanity, which is a beautiful humility. In other words, in the first creation account, God's humility is powerful. And in the second, God's power is humility. <laughs> the stories offer a complementary picture of the relationship between power and humility. And as Christians, this is a foreshadowing of the cross. Where is power found but in the humility of our Savior? In the humility that we share one another, the love that we extend to one another. That is the source of our power. And these two creation accounts reveal that when taken together. Now, this is not the only picture that Scripture gives us of, of who God is. There are stories in Scripture that reveal that God is abounding in mercy and in steadfast love. Taste and see that the Lord is good, that we say every Sunday when we gather for communion. Uh, there are also stories that can be problematic, where God is impatient and God is angry and God is jealous and sometimes God seems absent. But taken as a whole... And more on, on what scripture is uh, in three weeks. But taken as a whole, God is creative, God is good, God is humble, and God is mighty. God is creative, God is good, God is humble, and God is mighty. So there's a lens. That's the lens, that's the biblical lens of who God is. But scripture takes interpretation. So we have to add another lens to the spectrum with which we are working. What does it mean that God is creative? What does it mean that God is good? Well, if you want to be United Methodist about it, if you want to be United Methodist about it, uh, our Book of Discipline uh, has 25 articles of religion uh, edited from the 39 articles of religion that the Church of England had, but we don't have time to unpack all of those or talk about the differences. And that's a whole, that's, join us for confirmation on Sunday, February 5th. Uh, for, for that kind of discussion. But the first article of religion talks about the nature of God, and this is what it says. And if you're a United Methodist in the room, this is what you believe. Surprise, this is what you believe, and this is what you profess in terms of the nature of God. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body or parts, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay, let's unpack that just a bit. Okay, there is one God. That's a fair place to start. <laughs> That's also a very general place to start. You understand, from that very first sentence, there is, there is only one but true God. Uh, Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam all can be on that same page together. So it is a very general beginning of our articles of religion. So far, so good. It goes on to say that God is everlasting, which means that God is not bound by time in the same way that we are bound by time. The intent here is that God is not affected by decay or, or, or by division. God doesn't break down like entropy. 
But it doesn't necessarily mean that God is not changing. And what I mean by that, I don't mean that God is fickle or that God can't decide between the chicken or the fish, right? It means that God is relational. And we see that even in scripture where God bends down and fashions clay and Abraham prays to God and God changes God's mind and God loves humanity enough to bend down and empty himself to be with us. And that is not a stagnant, statuesque God. It's a God who loves you. Loves you enough to meet you where you are. God is everlasting. Or, or in Jesus' parables, more on Jesus next week, but in Jesus' parables we hear that God desires and God searches, God forgives and God loves. And that's a God who is relational. Relational. As I mentioned before, when we talk about resurrection and everlasting life, it doesn't mean that we'll be doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. There is nothing that you love so much <laughs> that you would do it over and over and over again for all time, forever and ever. Amen. But what it does mean, what it does mean is that with God and with love and loving one another, time doesn't have to make sense. And you've, I bet, I bet you have received a taste of this. It's uh, one of those first few phone calls with the person you love, and you talk for hours, but it only feels like minutes have passed. When we are filled with love, time doesn't have to make sense. There's an unboundness in that. Or, or we, we, just went to, we just went to Lucas's birthday party. Lucas had a birthday party. We went to his birthday party the other day. Uh, and imagine like you walk into a room and it's dark and then lights come on and everybody says, surprise! You are not of mind to say, oh my gosh, I am very surprised right now. I am quite enjoying this very much, right? No, you just are. That, that is a taste of what this everlasting life is. It is simply being. You are not aware so much as you simply are. When we talk about being connected with God, what did Moses hear? He said, I am. God is what it means to be. To be alive. To be in that oh, surprise kind of moment. You cannot quite define it. You cannot quite hold it. But it is real. And it is beautiful. And it is joyful. That's what I mean by God is everlasting. God is unbound, so to speak. It goes on to say that God is without body or parts. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, preacher, I've read the Bible. Uh, it says in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 that God walked in the Garden of Eden. And how do you walk without feet? You know, God, uh, God passed by Elijah on the top of the mountain. How can you pass by Elijah if there's nothing passing by Isaiah and the call of Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 6. The, when, when Isaiah sees God, he sees God sitting on a throne. How can you sit on a throne without being able to sit on a throne? And biblically, you're absolutely right. God is personified throughout Scripture. With a theological lens, however, we say God does not have a body. God is not physical. God is not bound by creation in the same way that we have a body and are bound by 
creation. God doesn't have a body in the same way that we have a body. And sometimes we get really hung up on words that describe who God is and which images are, are most important. We profess that God doesn't have a body or parts, as it says in the article of religion. So words like gracious God work just fine. Words like Father, Holy Father, in the context of the Trinity, work just fine. Words like loving mother work just fine because God gave birth to everything that is, seen and unseen. God is a nurturing God. These words are fine. So when we profess that God does not have a body or parts, when we talk about images of God, we can all just take a breath when we talk about these images. It goes on to say, God is of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. This means that God's power, wisdom, and goodness are unbound. God's goodness is unbound. Our goodness is bound by something like time. Our, bound, uh, our goodness is bound by, you know, I mean, there are just not enough hours in the day. Our, our goodness is bound by, by resources. We were at uh, Downtown Friends uh, yesterday morning, and eventually you run out of water, right? Eventually you run out of coats, and you have to come back the next week. And our, our goodness is, is bound by our finitude. We can only be in one place at one time. We profess that God's goodness is unbound. And this is amazing, <laughs> Well, it sounds amazing until you realize that God's goodness is not bound by things like merit. God's goodness is not bound by like our laws, so God tends to show mercy to the thief. God's goodness is not bound by border or nation. God makes it rain on the fields of the just and the unjust. In other words, and I've said this before, grace is amazing when it's given to you. And it's the toughest pill in all of Christendom to swallow when it's given to someone you don't think deserves it. We profess that God's goodness is unbound. And what does that mean? Well, I think it reveals just how bound our goodness is to one another. Because sometimes we bind goodness based on if we like the person or not, or if they're really in need or not, if they vote the same way we do or don't. Our, our, our goodness can be awfully bound up <laughs> in the way that we live our life. Now, we can continue to unpack this first article, and we can continue to unpack all 25 articles of religion, uh, but we are bound by things like energy, uh, and lunch, and my ability to keep you entertained enough to stay in the sanctuary. So uh, we will, uh, if you want to learn more about the Articles of Religion, meet me and David Burroughs February 5th for a confirmation class, right? Now we can take a deep dive in the history of, of, of creeds and, and all these things, but that's part of what the seminary experience is about. There's a reason why seminary, for example, is three years long. In that first year, you dive into, in terms of the nature of God, my gosh, you, you dive into scripture and you dive into history and you dive into theology and all of these things. You're learning all these things and um, uh, you're diving into the creeds and, and what it means to be, what it means to be a United Methodist. You, you memorize uh, the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer and all of these things. And, and by the end of that first year, you have built a nice and tidy box into which you have put God into, into which you've put God. 
and you, you, you leave the first year of seminary um, knowing a lot. And, or at least you think you do. You are the, typically, and I love this, when, when, when students go home after the first year of the seminary, they are now the resident expert of their family. Have you ever met like someone coming home from college and they've gotten a degree and now they're the resident expert of whatever they've studied? I see some snickering going on. Yeah, you know, you know that kid, right? I remember the first, year, the first semester after I came home from uh, being a vocal major. Well, I was just the best singer that grandma ever heard, right? I mean, just, you know, oh, you need a solo song? Let me do it, you know? Well, you come home from seminary and you are very smart. You know who God is. In fact, you're wondering why there are two more years of seminary left. Right? And it's funny, you go back wondering, well, what are we going to cover now? We covered God last semester. What are we going to do now? Well, <laughs> in that second year of seminary, your professors and your peers and your job placement take a big fat sledgehammer to that box that you built. Now, some walk away from that with sides just barely bruised. Others walk away with that box being in shambles. And you realize that, oh, God is a lot bigger than I thought God was. Especially in that first placement, because instead of reading and studying and being in libraries, you're with people. <laughs> and you have this realization like, oh, <laughs> I'll be working with people for the rest of my career, right? Oh, and these people are just as screwed up as I am. Oh, <laughs> And the second year of, of seminary is tough because that box you built is broken. So then why go back? What, what happens is God, for a moment, becomes a series of nothings. Well, God is not in the tree, and God is not quite the emotions I feel, and God is not the creed that I say. God is not. And what happens is there's this series of negations to the point where we say, God, is, God apparently is just nothing. Why go back? You have to go back. Because in your third year, do you know what you do in your third year? You build another box. <laughs> it's just bigger. And when you build that other box, you realize that you hold it loosely. Boxes are important. That's how we communicate our faith. Who is God? We have to use words. We have to say things. We have to say things like God's love is unbound. But we hold that box loosely because with every person we meet, that picture is changed and hopefully is bigger and more gracious than we can ever imagine. I'll say it like this. <laughs> this may be a silly example, but it's memorable. I used to work at Chick-fil-A when I was in high school. Like for four years, man, I was wearing a waffle tie by the end of it. I mean, you can be impressed. Um, or not. <laughs> so anyway, um, uh, I guess it was my junior year of high school, kids' earmuffs. My junior year of high school, everyone at Chick-fil-A smoked. Everyone at Chick-fil-A smoked. So me and a guy named Josh were taking out the trash one day. We just living it up, man. Marble lights. We had not graduated to the Reds yet. You know what I'm saying? You start small. And we're just hanging out at the dumpster. And then I heard Mr. Greg 
our boss. So can you guess what I did? Gone. Except I forgot to warn Josh. Josh was caught. Mr. Greg said, hey, were y'all smoking? And Josh said, no, it's just me. Unbound goodness. Mm, I didn't deserve that. Josh never told. Before we make any assumptions, number one, number two, and number three, number four isn't here. I'll just tell you, I'll just tell you what Mimi told me. Because I'll just tell you right there, here's a confession starts with the pastor. Uh, so I hid my uh, Marlboro lights in my sock drawer because I was smart. So when my mother was putting my clothes away, she met me in the hallway. And she says, if you ruin your God-given voice, you won't have to answer to me. And she just walked away. Coincidentally, I had to change my clothes because there was just this um, guilt-ridden fear in that moment. It's a mother's gift, really. The gift of guilt, it's a mother's gift. It's the gift that keeps on giving, right? So, hey, number one, number two, number three, First of all, you can't out-sneak a sneak, so there's no. Number two, God's goodness is unbound, right? It is unmerited, it is graceful, it is offered to us. It's in that moment where it just kind of takes your breath away. God's goodness is unbound. So, who is God? (laughs) Who is God to you? Is there a right answer? Is there a wrong answer? I'll say this. Humanity has been wrestling with God for a long time. (laughs) And there are those in our tradition who have said some really, really beautiful things about God, and we should learn them. And, like the boxes we build, we should also, because those traditions were written by people just as screwed up as we are, we should also hold those things loosely learn them and hold them, but hold them loosely. It's also quite a bold thing to say, I have the right idea about God and you don't. That's bold. (laughs) It's important to stand for our convictions. It is important to stand up for what you believe in. And it's also important to forgive your neighbor theirs. Yes, of course, stand up for what you believe in and also have the maturity to forgive your neighbor when they're not in the same place as you. It's not enough to say that God is powerful and mighty and graceful if you've never experienced it. If you have experienced the goodness of God, like when you're at Chick-fil-A and someone doesn't turn you in, you now know how unbound you need to be toward your neighbor. If you have not experienced the goodness of God, two things. Number one, look to the birds. 
Look to the birds. Look to those who have a deep and abiding presence and relationship with God. Look to the birds. If you can't find what's under the surface, if you don't know what's under the surface, look to the birds. And second, if you've never experienced the unbound grace of God, then come back next week and give us another shot at it. (laughs) In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.